Welcome to the Crisis Podcast, COVID-19 edition. My name is Travis Atkinson, and I am your host. Join me as we discuss behavioral health crisis services during the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome and hello. This is the Crisis Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Atkinson, here to bring you another story, another epic experience on your journey in this pandemic that we get to share together. I have on the podcast with me today Pete Hyland of Telecare in California and Jamie Brewer of Community Reach Center in Westminster, Colorado, just outside of Denver. Jamie, Pete, and I are fellow board members of the Crisis Residential Association, which is a nonprofit trade association that is made up of providers of residential alternatives to psychiatric hospitalization. So, I'm excited to have Pete and Jamie on the, on the show and share about their experiences, what's happening uh, with COVID-19, and I think you're going to enjoy it too. Pete and Jamie are great people, spice of life. So I am going to get out of the way and let the interview do the talking. Enjoy this episode of the Crisis Podcast, Pete Hyland and Jamie Brewer. Welcome everyone to the Crisis Podcast. This is Travis Atkinson, your host, and I have some of my friends here on tonight. I'm so excited. I want to welcome uh, Jamie Brewer from Colorado and Pete Hyland from Orange County, California. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So um, for the three of you that have been listening to the podcast since the beginning, uh, there is an update which I gave uh, a couple uh, weeks ago, which is that the podcast has taken a little bit different direction here for probably the, at least the next few months, and that is to focus on COVID-19 specific issues um, and how crisis uh, providers and systems are being impacted by those issues. So that is kind of what we're going to be talking about today. Um, so I've got some some experts here, fellow members of the Crisis Residential Association Board, uh, who I'd just love to hear from you a little bit about your experiences, about you know what life is like as a, a supervisor, as a provider, as a citizen in your communities. I mean, I, I know you all, but we live in very in completely different parts of the country, and sometimes we just don't know what all is happening everywhere. So. Um, why don't, before we get into like the details of work, um, how about just a nice existential check-in to see how you guys are doing and how life is, is impacted for you right now. You can answer that however you want to something epic, something mundane, something you miss, um, you know, frequent Trader Joe's trips, whatever it is. Um, Jamie, why don't we start with you? What's, what's going on in the suburbs of Denver and how are you experiencing, uh, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah. You know, I think the biggest impact for me has been that uh, my daughter's daycare is closed. And so um, I am, you know, watching her in the mornings while my husband teaches his fourth grade class online. Oh. <laughs> and then, 
he watches her while I go into work in the afternoons. Um, and so getting to just spend a lot more time with my daughter has been awesome. And also taxing, <laughs> um, spending a lot of time all the time with a one-year-old, you know, that's, that's uh, pretty tiring. They're um, always there every day. They, yeah. yeah. They haven't found other options, right? They're just with you. Yep, exactly. <laughs> um, and then trying to switch gears when I get into work and figure out what's going on there and what had been going on in the afternoon as I'm tracking my emails on my phone, but watching her. Um, so that's really been, you know, the, the biggest impact for me, I feel like. Um, but my, you know, agency in general is pretty large. And so there's lots of stuff that's happening there as well. Mm -hmm. um, I did manage to get to Costco the other day and they had both toilet paper and paper towels. So that was a win. Hallelujah. What a thrill. Really? Yes. That's that's, that, is a, that is a fine day. I hope you mark that one on the calendar. I feel like you just beat civilization. That's pretty awesome. How can I top that? How can I top that with my introduction? You've left me nothing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well uh you know orange county's been doing the orange county thing uh you know the, the I, I think the biggest impact to me has been uh you know the one thing uh my one kind of way that i do a lot of self-care is uh i play a lot of ice hockey and i have not been able to play one lick of ice hockey since this whole thing started and so i've had to find alternate means for self-care i've been jogging which is i don't know what i'm thinking when i do that but i do that I'm right you, man i'm right there with you yeah I, I have no idea you know that is my last resort for exercise and it is now become my 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 one true joy of self-care and then uh but there's a flip side to this which is my commute to work is is traffic free and uh it takes me 15 minutes uh, so all those people working from home, you know, at my advice in Orange County is I wouldn't mind if you stayed home for a little bit, even after this thing dissipates, that way I can get to work with the ease that I have been getting to work. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so not as much road rage and frustration on the way to work, but, uh, you know, I, uh, every community has been impacted in different ways. And, um, you know, I, I, I personally, I, I still feel a sense of, I still have this sense of a little bit of anxiety, you know, when, whenever, you know, you know, going to work or, or, or in the community, it's, it's, I, I, whether, whether I'm experiencing it, I definitely see other people experience it and it's very palpable. Like, you can almost feel it. It's almost emanating off people as you interact and engage with them, both at, at the office and then in the community. So it's, uh, it's, this is pretty intense. Yeah. Someone said that, um, it's hard to you're hard pressed to think of an event that has had such a global impact on people, right? Like uh, a hurricane affects like a, a, a couple of states in, a, in an area or a mudslide affects a country, but but never this wide scale experience. And I think it's really important either for our own mental health or for the, the mental health of those that we're serving to, to think that like we're all in this together, you know, yeah. And, and, and even the best curated Instagram or Facebook page this day and age, it's not that exciting. I mean, nobody's going to see, you know, a, a, an out, like a big outdoor concert or whatever it is. And, um, and, and we're all getting by as best we can, but it's also okay to feel a little 
ugh, every once in a while or a couple times yeah. a day, you know, to vacillate between those things. Yeah. 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 Um, just to, I'm going to read the comments as they're coming in here. So, uh, a buddy of mine, Mike Leach, uh, who works in, uh, healthcare, we are three plus one grandma at our home. And on week four of work from home, sheltering in place, have to find ways to find time away inside the house. Absolutely. Yep. I know Mike, yeah. has, uh, a few kids and, uh, he lives here in Michigan, but, um, yeah, reality every day, um, keeping expectations reasonable, I think is really important here. Um, so let's, let's move in then to how, um, how your crisis programs are doing. So, uh, you know, as I mentioned at the, at the top, you know, the three of us are on the board of the crisis residential association. We've been hosting weekly calls to kind of check in with each other, find out how providers are doing what's happening. But, um, uh, do, do you get distance as supervisors from the challenges that are happening at your pr- crisis program? Let's say like on the weekends, like do you get to follow that rhythm that you normally do? Are your boots in it seven days a week? And just tell us what's happened in the last couple days in your programs. Well, uh, you know, here in Orange County, the last seven days have been, uh, you know, it's actually last this past week was really kind of a steady week. Um, initially, when this first happened, we did see a dip in our in the number of uh, uh, referrals that we were getting. And uh, it was uh, it was a little bit difficult to fill beds. I mean, the, my crisis uh, residential program relies on other people making referrals. I Unfortunately, I can't take walk in. So I'm I'm. Uh, you know, at the kind of at the the mercy of of other providers, uh, you know, is, uh, assessing, evaluating people for services, and then sending them my way. And so initially, it was a little bit odd that we were we were struggling to maintain a, a capacity. That changed within the last week, week and a half, where we've been at capacity, um, uh, 80, 90 percent, 100 percent capacity. Uh, you know, it it's. It, uh, we're really trying to nail down how to how to properly screen, navigate through the screening, make sure that we're taking all precautionary steps necessary with with any referral that's uh, crossing our threshold. Um, in all honesty, I'm doing a lot of apologizing to residents as they come into the program. Like, look, I'm really sorry, but I'm going to have to ask you that. I'm going to you know, the nurse is going to talk to you and ask you some questions and take your temperature or. You know, we're going to do X, Y, and Z uh, when you get in here, just as a precautionary measure. And um, I, I really haven't had much people say that they they mind that. Most people are like I completely understand, no problem. Um, uh, and they're just happy that there was a place that would accept them, given that they're in this crisis, um, and uh, would you know would open up their doors and and give them a place to stay for a brief period of time. So I'd say in the last week we're really trying to navigate that as well as. Um, you know, balance out the anxieties of, of the people that, that I supervise has been a, a real a struggle and, and supporting them and, uh, you know, trying to reassure them that, you know, these are the steps that we're taking and we're in this together. And, you know, there is an end to this. So, um, uh, which, you know, I know it's, it's really hard for a lot of people to see the light at the end of the tunnel, but I, I, I think it's there. It's just hard to, it's just yeah. hard to see at a time. I want to, I want to touch on something you said, Pete. Um, so this, uh, group is going to have, uh, this podcast audience, uh, which hopefully exceeds the, the host or the, 
the panel here in numbers, um, is going to get exclusive access to uh, some of the results of a survey that we just sent out around crisis residential uh, providers. And one thing that you said, Pete, about that decrease resonated with um, many of the other respondents. We had 130 crisis residential providers respond to a brief survey about how COVID-19 is affecting services. 50% of them said there is a decrease in referrals and 27% of them said there's no change in referrals. So three quarters of them have not experienced an increase. And I think it's important to note it, to, to say like that, this was a survey that started Friday and ended today. Um, that's, that doesn't necessarily mean it's how it's going to be. It's just in this moment, yeah. it might be the the tsunami wave that, you know, retracts into the ocean before it, it comes and hits the shore. Um, yeah. So we have to think about, we have to look at past trends, daily trends, but we also have to think about what the next two weeks are going to bring. And if we're overwhelming our ERs and reducing our psych hospital numbers, crisis residential, you know, there, there's going to be a demand there. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, I know I, I would say that a lot of our the reason our referral dip was um, we we rely on an enormous amount of, uh, of outpatient provider referrals. And those outpatient providers weren't going out into the field they, or, or accepting people into their okay. programs uh, uh, to do a face to face evaluation. So I think that initially was a little bit of our of, of the slowdown and I think once they've got some processes in place, I've now been able to effectively assess, evaluate individuals at, at both at an outpatient level and at other levels of care in the community and, and then make a proper referral. So um, uh, we, of course, we, we've been getting a lot of referrals from CSUs, which we're happy to take. And um, and those are, are, are great uh, um, access points for crisis residential services here in Orange County. Uh, Orange County's done a great job with expanding CSUs, and I think they're going to continue to expand CSUs as well as crisis residential. And those two working in tandem seem to be a really, you know, they seem to be the Batman and Robin of crisis res. They, they, uh, they're, they're awesome. Where crisis res obviously is the Batman and the yeah. CSU is the Robin, yeah. just so you know. Yeah, I mean, um, you clarified it for the audience. Uh, gets the cool car and all the gadget. <laughs> and, and CSU in California. <laughs> See, Pete, you're just like me. You make yourself laugh probably more than you make yourself laugh. Um, CSUs in California, it, it just by 23-hour level of care, is that what you're talking about? Yes, I'm sorry. Yes. So they're, uh, they're the 23 hour um, assessment evaluation uh, and then um, discharge to proper level of care after after uh, an evaluation. OK, thank you, Jamie. How about you? Yeah, so I am in an interesting position because I am considered a senior manager in my agency. And so um we have under me a unopened hospital alternative program, which um, was our crisis stabilization unit, a three to five day stay that's transitioning into a longer term, like 30 day stay um, program. And we were, were in the process of getting relicensed for that. So it's not actually open. Um, and that program has its own manager that I oversee. And then we have our behavioral health urgent care, which is a 24-7 walk-in program and a 23-hour observation. Um, and again, that has its own manager that I then oversee and also a mobile crisis team 
that has its own manager that I oversee. And then I directly manage our medication assisted treatment team. Um, and so because our hospital alternative program isn't currently open and our, my other two crisis programs have individual managers, my focus has a lot been on our medication assisted treatment team. Um, and then we also have what we call our stages program, which was a 16 bed crisis residential as well. (laughs) Um, and that has its own manager that doesn't sit under me. And so I'm in this unique position of the crisis res that I kind of oversee isn't open, but we have a lot of other bed-based services. We're all in the same division. We all talk a lot. We all exchange information. And so I have really just been gathering information and asking questions from the managers, you know, what's going on in your programs, what's happening, um, getting a lot of great information from the crisis residential association, providing that feedback back to them, like, Hey guys, here's what other people are doing. Um, and then watching how our leadership is making decisions, right? So I have a clinical director that's above me. Um, and so it also puts me in this unique position of having a lot of great information and observation, but not being in a really good um, decision-making capacity, <laughs> which is also frustrating at the same time. Um, and, and so I have a little bit more control over what's going on with our mobile crisis team and, and our uh, behavioral health urgent care. And so I've seen some interesting trends there, but I can speak a little bit to our uh, 16-bed stages our crisis residential that it is open. Um, they made the decision to reduce the capacity from 16 beds down to eight in order for everyone to have their own room and to have six feet of, you know, space around everybody at all times. Um, and that program has consistently stayed full. There's always a wait list for that program. Um, the behavioral health urgent care initially saw a wave of people coming in the doors and now is hardly seeing anybody come in. Um, and my observation kind of managing the MAT team, which is more of an outpatient team, is that people are just really fearful and they don't want to leave their homes. Um, they don't want to get out and seek help, even if they know that they need it. And that makes me worry for the people that we work with, that they're sitting at home, afraid, not getting the treatment that they need. And then down the line, kind of, we talked about capacity. It's going to put a burden on law enforcement and EMTs that are going to get the welfare checks to go out and, you know, see how these people are doing. And then they're going to end up in the ERs and, you know, what does that all look like? I'm curious what the ripple to that will be. You know, Travis, you talked about it, and I, I agree. And Jamie, I, after hearing you talk, I'm curious what the ripple effect will be for those people that have, because I think we're seeing a little bit of that too, is people that are afraid to leave their house, even though they're in crisis. And how do they get those services? Like, you know, even after this thing dissipates and everything kind of goes back to normal, I'm, uh, you know, there there's going to be some sort of residual effect on, on the the residents, the members of the seek those services. Yeah. I, I think you have to ask one question you have to ask is how much, how many services can you provide um, it, to a person that's in their house that that's not in person, like not coming into their house, but like how much can you push the envelope on that? Because if you have to reduce your beds, um, which is completely understandable and the psych hospitals are doing the same thing. Um, and you want, and you, the message you're giving people is to stay home, then what's the best that you can do? And I, it, and it's, it's way more than an outpatient telehealth visit once a week, in my opinion. It's daily check ins. It's probably weekly or, or multiple times per week, uh, support groups 
done over video if people have the technology and the ability to do that. It's a it's a very it's almost like an like an assertive community treatment type of approach to people that we should know that they're high risk before they start to present their symptoms. You know, we should be able to look at emergency room data, um, psych hospital utilization data, um, diagnosis. You know, if, if a person's prone to anxiety, if they're prone to delusions, especially delusions about government takeovers or, you know, like people, people thinking they're bugged all the time, then we've got to kind of like bring in as many services over the phone as we can. Um, in, and some of those need to be non-demand caring contacts. They can't yeah. just be, you know, like, hey, you, I, I'm supposed to check in with you, so I am. Uh, the way I understand it, we have, um, even though we've amped up telehealth, we've got some uh, behavioral health professionals, paraprofessionals, whatever, that are, that are not fully employed right now. That could benefit from having something to do. And if it's not the residential model, I'm not saying that I don't want people to go to crisis res. I think that's that's a really important solution. But if if they're if we're looking for in home work, we've got to like like bring this on. Like I think we really need to um, to to just shower people with services in a way that we would nor- not normally think of um, yeah. without some kind of crazy payment model or something. Yeah. Yeah. You know, an example of that is at our behavioral health urgent care, we don't run our own crisis line. The state of Colorado operates their own crisis line and that's for the state. And so we utilize and funnel everything there. Um, But, you know, what we are contemplating is do we open our own crisis line just during this time to really serve capacity for the consumers Mm -hmm. that are in our community um, to be able to, to then just over the phone tell them, do you have a computer? Do you have a phone with internet? Can we get on Zoom and can we do a, a crisis session right now in this yeah. moment? You know, if we can get them on the phone initially, then we can figure out that technology to make that happen. And, and then we can use our skills to say, I know you're scared and I know you're at home, but we have this crisis residential service. We're taking all these precautions. We would really love to see you come in so that we can help get you on the right track. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, we had a, a question come in from Mike, and hi Amelia, welcome to the um, to the podcast. Mike uh, said, "Does anyone know if the referrals or requests for support mirror medical needs during larger community emergency uh, episodes or events? Um, you know, like do you and I and I think Mike's talking about behavioral health requests, but like, do they come at the same time?" Does one follow the other? Do you, like, what do y'all know about that? Or what, what do you, how, how do you um, expect this to play out? So I think I can pull a little bit of my um, background. I got my master's in disaster, international disaster psychology. So <laughs> um, <laughs> pull, pull a little bit from that. Uh, but in general, when you look at large scale disaster events, um, the initial wave is just about, you know, what are the food needs? What are the shelter needs? What are the medical needs? And right now there's so much fear around, is there going to be a food shortage? I mean, I don't know how many times I've heard that. And walking into Costco, it's fully stocked, guys. There's no food shortage. 
Um, but people are really afraid about that. And so their focus and their concentration are, you know, the bottom of the Maslow's pyramid. <laughs> They're looking for those things to make yeah. sure that that is, is settled first for them. And in the meantime, you know, they are building up all of this anxiety and stress and crisis, and they're just pushing it, pushing it back and pushing it back. And when there is some sort of break where um, they've secured those basic needs, then we're really going to see a lot of those behavioral health needs emerge. Mm. Um, Pete, anything to add either from a, an educational perspective or just straight up riffing and kind of going Nostradamus on this? Well, I'll go Nostradamus. I'm just uh, going to pull it out of the old hat here. No, I, I mean, I, I, like I said earlier, I think that, uh, I, I really do think that there's that behavioral health is going to see the impact from this beyond just this initial several you know months that that really that the that COVID nineteen is is you know the 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 the, the deaths and the the number of people that are infected increases from all the data that I've been reading obviously there'll be a peak and then that peak will will begin to gradually decline and and down to you know, a, a manageable point in most states. Um, however, you know, if I was to guess, and that's pretty much all I could go off right now, I would say that as that declines, there's another there's another graph that's not being projected, which is the amount of people who are going to need to seek crisis services or some sort of behavioral health services that will be above that line and climb higher than than perhaps what we saw with, with COVID-19. You know, I know that behavioral health is, uh, it's a hot topic for a lot of people, yet it, it, it doesn't get a lot of play. Um, and uh, it's, it, uh, uh, you know, you wouldn't see, if there was a behavioral health crisis like we could experience after this COVID-19, I, I don't think it would get the media play that that's COVID-19 gets. It's just, unfortunately, it's just not as fear developing for the average Joe Schmo, but it's extremely fearful for the person who's who's uh, who has that diagnosis, who has those symptoms. I mean, there, you know, I can only speculate, but I'm assuming there are people out there that are feeling really, like you said, Travis, trapped in their their houses. Really, really, their symptoms are getting worse, but they know they can't leave. I mean, that person after this subsides and they go out to seek services, they're going to be in a real bind. Um, so I, I see that I see it increasing. Yeah. So when when a crisis residential program is fully functioning, when it, when you have everything that you need, you've, you're, you, you've got your staff, you've got your your clinical practices, you've got your capacity, whatever it is, like you, you can have a transformative effect on a person's life. And you've, I'm sure both of you have seen that in the work that you've done over the years. Um, there's two things that I see right now, and maybe there's more. Uh, feel free to enlighten me. But there's two things that I see right now that are getting in the way of crisis residential programs being able to do their job. One, with with confidence and, and effectively. Um, one is uh, the lack of personal protective equipment uh, that people are providing behavioral health services, but in, in a very intimate, we'll say, environment, like homes, clinics, places where six to 16 people, let's say, might might be. Um, and without, without the same protections, I imagine that... Um, uh, it's pretty easy right now for communities or counties to look over the crisis home and look directly at these other places and forget that these are essential services that need protection, like health, you know, health risk. Um, and, and I think the other thing is, is kind of a, 
a sense of belonging. And this, ha- this is especially with the frontline staff, the direct support professionals who are, are uh, com- uh, um, risking some of their health potentially or the, that of their family members to go in and provide these services when they don't have the training they don't have the education. They certainly don't have the pay that many of these health professionals have that we see on the nightly news, um, you know, the doctors and nurses and, and things like that. Um, but they've, they, w- they were a forgotten or overlooked group before COVID-19 happened. And now um, we're starting to see just how important they are. And like, we can't run any crisis residential programs if we don't have frontline staff, you know, or if the okay. frontline staff gets sick, and then you got to shut the whole thing down. Anybody that worked with them for 14 days, I mean, you don't have a, a stockpile of an extra 40 staff waiting to come in and, and relieve them. So I want to bring that up to just ask what what are your programs doing or how are how, how do those um, concerns resonate with what you're dealing with right now? And maybe even what's the solution? Hmm. You know, I think every day we're really at least at the, the crisis res programs in Orange County, we're really having almost a daily conversation on, on, on the, the PPE thing. Uh, you know, the, the, we've been fortunate that we've, we have a, a support of, uh, of, uh, uh, um, you know, the telecare corporation, which has been great. And they're, um, they've been, uh, you know, getting us, uh, and all their programs as much, as much equipment as they can, you know, but then there's that, uh, there is that point at which we're trying to hunt down as much as as much as we can get our our hands on. Mm-hmm. Um, I I you know I think that it brings a level of uh, it, it brings some sort of security to the staff if there is some level of PPE being at least now as this as this pandemic has progressed. I think that um, most programs are operating with a standard protocol of some sort of PPE placed, whether it's on staff or just those residents that are, that are symptomatic, um, or residents and staff, you know, at Treehouse, we've done, as long as we have the PPE to support it, we're doing, you know, masks on, on staff and, and residents, you know, we're trying to do the social distancing and support social distancing. We haven't done what Jamie's talked about, which is reducing census so that we can have single beds that has not come up in conversation and uh, um, and I'm not quite sure if that will be a conversation and we'll continue to try to provide services as best as we can, given the the being at full capacity. Um, You know, I, it's, it's, but it's, it's, so it's also the solutions outside of just your like, well, we're out of, we're out of Lysol spray. So what can we use in, 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 uh, in lieu of that, you know, water and bleach and those types of things. So looking for alternative sources, that are seem to be more abundant in supply. Um, you know, uh, my I've got this great office coordinator, and she was able to hunt down a bunch of really great stuff. Um, sl- supplies are slowly coming in, which is really great to see. Um, and so the the, the PPE uh, issue is definitely uh, um, starting to provide the staff with a, with a little bit of support. Um, and then I agree with you, Travis, you know, they are the frontline staff. They do risk a hell of a lot. Um, and, uh, and they, they, they don't receive the pay that you would in a hospital setting. They don't receive the pays of doctors or, or nurses or those types of things. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I'm currently trying to do as much as I can to provide them the support that I can, given the limited amount of resources we have available, given the, the current climate. Um, and, and if it's a mask, 
great. Here's a mask. If it's mask and gloves, if it's, if it's a, Hey, why don't you take 15 minutes? Or I had a great conversation with a, a staff member a while, a while ago. And uh, you know, he was nervous about coming in and, and for amp for, for all the right reasons, a family man and really was looking one to look after his family. And uh, in all honesty, I, you know, I was, I was able to compromise with the guy. Um, you know, I said, look, why don't you, why don't you, you know, t- take a day and, and think it over and then, you know, let's see if we can get you back into work tomorrow. And the guy, so the guy who showed up to work the next day, great attitude, ready to work. And it was, uh, I think it's just those types of things, having some compassion and empathy for those staff when they are going through those things sometimes goes a long way rather than, you know, cutting a hard line and just saying, well, you know, you're expected to be here because this is your job. You know, in effect, I could lose, I could lose that guy, a hardworking guy who needs a job to feed his family. And um, so if I can be the compassionate employer and, 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 and I'd, I'd much rather choose that option over being the, the hard line on that. So, yeah, you bring up a good point. Pete. Crisis brings up um, any, <laughs> it, it, it allows leaders to shine because they've been doing good things all along, or it brings up inadequacies in the relationship dynamic between staff and supervisors. Like if you were stepping on their backs and didn't appreciate them before, it's that much harder to like, you know, change that course and suddenly be appreciative and do whatever, you know, for them when you kind of treated them like an afterthought before. So, um, Jamie, how about you and your programs? Um, yeah, I I think, you know, one thing that really struck a chord with me, Travis was talking about the inequity that our frontline staff feel compared to those in the medical field. Um, and I specifically think about, you know, we have um, people in my neighborhood that are hand sewing masks because that's now the thing to do, right? Um, you know, they're posting on Facebook, hey, you know, I'm selling these for $10 a piece. Or if you are an essential service, right, I, I give you to I'll give them to you for free. Mm-hmm. Um, and thinking about, you know, there's are a bunch of distilleries in Colorado and in the Denver metro area that are making hand sanitizer. <laughs> <now. laughs> um, distilleries and breweries. And Yet I even found myself pausing for a moment, like, do I have the right to reach out to this neighbor and say, hey, I'm in the behavioral health field. We'd love some free masks. Or is that taking away from the doctors and the nurses that are really on the front line? You know, and I even had a moment of like, that was a struggle. <laughs> that was a struggle. Um and, and seeing others in my organization struggle with, you know, not wanting to reach out for that help, either because they don't feel like they're on the same level as the doctors and the nurses and the hospital and the medical staff, um, or they they just don't, I don't know, they don't have that, that kind of power. I mean, my experience in general is that um, crisis providers are very humble people. You don't get into working in crisis with an inflated ego. (laughs) And so sometimes it can be difficult to step into that position where you kind of need that to say, yes, I am as important. Um, You know, but with that said, we have um, a lovely church that's making some homemade masks for our, some of our staff, which is great. And, um, you know, I I don't have any updates on getting the hand sanitizer from the distillery, but we're working on it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, maybe show them some past receipts of, you know, like when you went there, that might, that might, um, uh, uh, Rihanna brand, uh, one of my friends from Wyoming in the, 
in the um, in the chat now, and she's. I think maybe we're taking her to church. We got a big yes. We got a. That's totally how I feel. So kudos to you guys for creating that little uh, community of empathy here. That's that's super important. Um, so Pete, you kind of frame this like a like we're all making a choice every day when we come to work, right? That like, there is a lot of stimuli. There is a lot of like reasons to be afraid or, you know, to be almost like paralyzed. And I think it's kind of bringing us to that place um, to say, what are we, what are we going to choose to do every day? You know, um, not trying to separate heroes versus cowards, but just to say, you know, uh, almost in like a, a serenity prayer kind of situation, like what am I in control of? And do I have enough certainty of my, excuse me, of my safety, knowing that we can't guarantee anything? And I think that's probably part of why we're all struggling as Americans right now with this, is that third world countries, and I even heard this about people who have been chronically suicidal or who have had suicidal attempts, suicide attempts, they are used to disequilibrium as part of their life. They always feel uncomfortable. They always are worried that, you know, in a civil war that like some, some rocket's going to come into their, their town. That's just like a feeling that's natural to them. And and we've been kind of uh, led for a long time to maybe rightfully so to believe that we are safe and that there is a certain level of protection that we have around us. And now that's like kind of being stripped away. Um, Jamie, you mentioned that, you know, crisis provider or crisis workers can be a, a, a meek and humble group. And I like how you said, well, what if medical workers need it? It's like, well, damn it. Our lives are important too. <laughs> and like, in two weeks, we're going to have a doctor come through our doors at the crisis residential program who's stressed out. And like, we better have not uh, contracted the virus. Right. Um, but how, how do you, how is it working in your programs? Uh, and, or maybe you've seen this in leaders at this organization or others, like, how do you find that resolve to, you know, make a good decision or, or do something that's human, that's, that's good amidst all of this, these challenges and this chaos? Yeah. Um, you know, I, you know, I, come uh, back. Hey, this is, go ahead, Jamie. Excuse me. This is, um, yeah, I, <laughs> I come back a lot to how do we build resiliency and what are the things that we are doing um, that we are telling the people we work with to do, but we're not doing ourselves. So, right. So doctors yeah. make the work. Patients. <laughs> um, and so, you know, coming back to if I was in a crisis res program as a resident, you know, um, what advice would I be giving myself? And am I actually doing that? Am I actually following through on that? Um, and I also think a lot about, I think people and individuals that get into crisis residential work, whether that's your mental health tech or your peer support or your therapist, or even your provider, um, those individuals a lot of times have their own histories of crisis and trauma and they might not have the resiliency or the coping skills or the capacity within themselves to just do these things that we teach all the time. And they just need the extra support to sit down and say, 
What's your plan for when you get home? What are you going to do? What, what's your schedule? What skills are you incorporating? What did you do last night? Did you do this meditation? Okay, we're going to take time out as a staff for 10 minutes to go do a meditation together, right? How am I supporting those skills being used? So, Jamie, have you heard of this, uh, uh, this mindfulness book by John Kabat-Zinn called Wherever You Go, There You Are? Mm-mm. Okay. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful book. It's all about like mindfulness and, and Eastern meditation and things like that. But, um, what, what this pandemic is forcing us to do that our work as mental health professionals doesn't always push us this deep into is to truly ask the question, like, how much do we value ourselves and our own wellness? And what are we willing to do to preserve or improve that? Yeah. And I, you and I talked, I think it was in the last week or so, and I'm so glad that you brought this up, this, this idea of challenging your staff to use the skills that they teach other people to use that like, you don't have like a COVID-19 box over here on your supervisor's desk. It's like, okay, here's the tools we haven't talked about yet. It's like, no, this exists within, you know, and like, you only have to sit with yourself and like, it's kind of, um, scary. For us, because maybe some of us got into the profession because we wanted to help people and deflect helping ourselves, you know, and yeah. so we are forced to answer some very deep questions about our humanity, our purpose, and we can't shy away from it. There's no, there's no place to hide. This, this virus is a bright sunshine of which there is no shadow to like to set ourselves into. Um, so thank you for bringing that up. That is, that is so important. Pete, uh, what else would you say about that as far as, you know, finding resolve and, and, and inner whatever to, to get through this and, and be helpful? You know, one of the things that, um, that I've seen in some people who work at crisis, uh, crisis or crisis residential programs is, um, is, and I don't, I've never been able to put my, finger on on what it's called but it's a it's a level of resilience that when the when things go south they're they're they step up to the line and and they're ready to they're ready to that's what they want that's what they come to work for um you know uh Personally, and I don't know if this this probably doesn't make me sound too sane, but personally, I really love that about crisis work. I love that I get to go to work and I don't have uh, I could have things that I'm scheduled to do or something that uh, that's on my day planner or whatever. And that could go right out the window the moment I cross the program threshold uh, with the first interactor engagement I have with a staff, a phone call, a resident. Um, you know, j- just whatever it is, because things happen at such a, a rapid pace. So I think this. I think crisis and crisis residential programs are built for this type of thing. They that's what they that's what they do on a daily basis. And that worker, that that person who uh, is there, um, you know, they they uh, they yes, they have to reach in that grab bag of for for tools of resilience. But at the same time, there's a passion and a and and uh, a real desire to do the job. Um, I you know. I had a lot of conversations with people that don't work in mental health and, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, text chats with friends and they're all at home. And, and it, and, you know, when this thing happened, uh, it never occurred to me not to go to work the next day. And I know that that was true for a few of my staff, that it never occurred to them not to show up the next day at work or the day after that. 
uh, or when things got really bad the day after that or whatever the case may be, that those people uh, showed up because they uh, they like this job. They're they're attracted to the to the 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 unknown crisis that can occur just at just at the job. And uh, um, I mean, I'm not quite sure I answered the question, but I think that that's that, that there's something about that that the crisis worker has. And if you could bottle that up and and man, you'd make millions at, at crisis residentials. You could just find that person. They, they they exist. They do. They really do. Yeah, I love that, Pete. Thank you, thank you for for saying that. I think that there is a um, a, a sense with like when urgency is high, you know, like yeah, a lot of people do step up to that. Um, and you know, there's some fight or flight that I'm sure we're all witnessing in programs to say like, gosh, like somebody's this person, whether they're new or that's just, they haven't been pushed this far before. Um, you know, that they, they're not handling it well. That doesn't mean that's how it'll be forever. Um, but there's, uh, there's something to be said sometimes though, about not um, shielding your staff from all of the stress, you know, you can't be responsible for controlling their newsfeed or, or whatever, or, or even the in individual interactions. Like if somebody's like triggering, because sometimes that's how people grow is by going through a difficult situation. Right. And granted, this isn't like the, the intern, the intern platform that we're all asking for. This is, this is pretty serious. Um, but they're just, uh, we, we might learn a lot from, from everyone. Okay. I found a new feature in, um, in be live here and I'm going to try it out. Okay. So here it is. I, I pulled up, uh, Mike's comment. Some of our West Michigan residential programs are getting support from local breweries for sanitizer, but it's taken individuals reaching out to make that happen. In my opinion, residential and crisis homes are just as important. Um, but significantly less known ask and get what you can. Absolutely. Mike, I agree. Yeah. We need to be assertive. Like we got to push it and like be annoying to people, you know, but we have such a good pitch. I mean, I, when I was, when I was running crisis programs, I could never get funds that a, a youth program was asking for. And I couldn't get funds that an education program was asking for. Cause I, that's kind of like where my totem pole was, but that doesn't mean you're not important. And if you can pitch an, a message that's easy for your community to understand around suicide prevention, wellness, stability, you know, giving people the things that, that more and more people are hungry for as they're like pushed to the limits, you might get an outpouring. Um, so we might not be the March of Dimes or the American Cancer Society type of like recognition, but people, especially in the next few months, and this is my Nostradamus prediction here, people like in the next few months, the number of people that we see come through these crisis programs that have never needed mental health services before, much less crisis mental health services are going to be damn grateful that we were there. And so it's time to, you know, take pride and ownership over what, what is being delivered in these programs, because it's, it's truly incredible. It is truly a wonderful service that that more people should know about. And maybe this is the time to do that. So, um, all right, here is a question from uh, Rihanna. We use catch it, check it, change it. But with this, we cannot change this. What do we tell people right now to ease anxiety tools, please? Mm. Oh man. So that to me sounds very CBT, right? Um, and one thing that we know about CBT is that it's not just about changing it. It's about asking, is this a helpful thought? 
it might be a true thought, but is it actually helpful for you? Because true, if it's not helpful, how can you focus on something different or how can you use a different skill to ease some of the emotions around that true thought, right? So I can't change that. Um, I might be infected with COVID-19, but instead of feeling anxious about it all the time, because that's just going to make it worse, I'm going to practice some radical acceptance, right? So I'm, I'm pulling in other tools to say, you know what? Um, I am doing everything that I can to protect myself and I still might get infected. And if I do, I will deal with that when it happens. But for right now, I'm going to do my breathing. I'm going to use the tools that I have and I'm going to focus on taking care of my family right now instead. Great. I love that. I don't know if I can follow that up. Jamie, you said everything. Spectacular. Well said. No, I mean, I, I, you know, you, 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 come, you come across people who are, are, are anxious. And, you know, the best tool that I've ever found in dealing with someone who is anxious is to, you know, really, instead of saying, hey, whatever, don't worry about it. Don't, you know, this is, don't worry about it. I, 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 you've totally dismissed every feeling that, they, that they're ever having about this. So, you know, I think there's nothing wrong with with saying, you know what, everything you're thinking is is uh, it's it's true. It's and it's true in the context of what's going on between your ears. And, um, you know, let's get you out of that space a little bit. Let's get you active. I think a lot of people tend to be more anxious the more they isolate. Um, often residents, you know, at our program, the, they might be hanging out in their room a lot and and they might become more symptomatic and we try to draw them out and get them active doing something um and whether it's you know a, a task of just socializing in the living room with other residents or helping cook dinner or something like that and and get them engaging in some a connection with another with, with other human beings because the static uh, the static between people's ears, uh, it, 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 it's really, really, really loud. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, if you guys, if I let you into the static that goes on between my ears, uh, you know, I, I don't know, you, you would totally think something different of me. It, it, you know, it's the, so we all have that, that there's, that there's an inner dialogue or there's a, there's an inner mantra or there's something that, that perpetuates the anxiety in a person that, that when isolated, when alone, only gets worse. I, I've really never somebody's like, what did you, oh, I was anxious. So what'd you do? Well, I hung out by myself for three days and I felt a lot better. I've never <laughs> actually ever heard somebody say that. You know what I'm saying? Uh, um, and so I think community, I think companionship, I think, and by companionship, I mean platonic pain companionship. I mean, some something that's, I'm hanging out with other people. I'm socializing. I'm doing an activity that's, that, that, that has nothing to do with COVID-19 or nothing to do with the media or, or, or uh, my phone or wherever they're getting that information, yeah. maybe that feeds those anxieties. Yeah. Um, so great stuff guys. Um, I, I think we have to remember that our, our brain has been developing, you know, through our ancestors for a long time. Um, and there was a time Going back to that that uh, that scenario of being in like a third world country that's in a civil war, there was a time when all humans had to have their alert system on all the time. They just had they had to know where their next meal was coming from, how they were going to stay warm, 
um, the predators that were in the area, the, the enemies that, that could have, you know, that could take them down. And so our brains are wired to keep ourselves safe. And the question you asked, Jamie, is, is wonderful. And that is, you know, is it helpful? Is every thought that we have helpful? Well, it, our brain's trying to keep us alive and we have to appreciate that. And I learned about this in acceptance and commitment therapy. This idea that we are not every thought that we have that we can separate ourselves and we can appreciate the survival mode that our brain sometimes brings us into, especially right now, but that every thought that we have is not helpful. And so how do we separate ourselves to say, not, I think therefore I am, I don't have to live out every thought that I have, but I am a human being that's trying to survive. And therefore I have thoughts and some of them keep me alive. And some of them are very threatening to my existence, you know, or they're, they're not aligned with, with what I need. Um, and, and to hold that and not just encourage your friends to do it, you know, the ones that don't work in mental health or the ones that, that, uh, that, that mental health conversations maybe haven't been the norm, but, but your staff, like we as mental health professionals have to be practicing these things, uh, in order to, to live this out. Um, the last thing I want to ask about is, um, I'm starting to see some, pretty just just a couple of sad anecdotal stories here and there in the news of people who are completing suicide some of whom are finding out that they have COVID-19 um, and then are, are completing suicide shortly afterwards some people the isolation is getting to them uh, and 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 causing them to 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 act on these thoughts um, if we're prone to the news of what's happening in medically with COVID-19 I imagine many of us are going to be impacted by uh, negative news or, or unfortunate news of uh, what's happening in, in mental health or in suicide prevention. Um, how do we stay strong and resilient uh, as we get um, unfavorable messages of a different kind in the coming weeks? Oh, man. Um you know, I, uh, I, I really think that uh, the the best way we're going to stay strong is um, is is together. That that I don't think that uh, uh, like I I really want to find that solution for the stuff that the negative stuff that we hear in community. I want to find it in um, in in. in in getting together as much as we can't get together, unfortunately, does that make sense? But, but finding a way to connect with people that where there's a, where there's a community that is uh, supportive in this. Um, and it's not the easiest thing to do right now. I know that. Uh, um, uh, and, you know, I would, I would say to anybody who's, who's at that level, you know, if you can seek, crisis residential services, I would seek crisis residential services because that's the place where you're going to get your, well, one of the, one of the few places where in behavioral health nowadays, besides inpatient uh, or, or at a, or at a crisis stabilization unit for a brief period of time, where you're going to get an engagement and interaction on a regular basis with other people um, where you're going to be monitored and, and assisted and supported uh, and, and not alone. And not uh, glued to the media, to the TV, to the to your phone, or whatever the case may be. Um, and and uh, you know, I think 
I think crisis services or, or, or crisis residential services is really where it's at with with assisting those people. Um, and I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm biased though. I work in that field. I, you know, but I, I really think that it's that it's it's going to be a, a real great support for a lot of people now and and as we come out of this thing. Um, you know, I think for me, what I come back to is an attitude of gratitude. Um, so kind of Travis, what you were talking about, our brains are hardwired to notice and observe the negative twice as much as the positive. Um, and if we really focus on the negative, the lives lost in the community, and, and we are looking at that forest and we lose sight of the individual trees that we're helping um, you know, day by day, just what are we doing? Did I do my best today? Um, what am I grateful for today? I'm grateful for Sam who walked through the front door and who is doing much better, right? Rather than focusing on what the media might be reporting and things that are outside of my control in that manner. So what do I have control over? Did I do my best today? And what am I grateful for today? Great advice. Great stuff. I'm going to end with, uh, um, a quote here from Mike. He said, the panel is helpful. Even it's hard to interact and support each other when we can't get together after work to decompress. Yeah, absolutely. Like the local bar or the coffee shop yeah. or wherever, you know, you go out to dinner, get a bite to eat, <laughs> probably breakfast if you're working third shift. Um, but you know, you don't even have that opportunity. And so your, um, your, your circle, not just your, your circle, your tribe, but like when you spend time together, it's all kind of incubated into time that you're on and, you know, in this reality. So Mike, I'm glad you found it helpful. I'm glad that, uh, that we had some people here participating. Pete and Jamie, I'm so happy. I know you, I'm so happy to like be your friend and I just missed the heck out of you guys. I wish I was seeing you next month, you know, in person and the no flash. Kidding. I hope we get to later this year. That would be just such a treat. I've, I've really come to appreciate the humans as I call them. Um, like you, you guys are great people. And I, um, yeah, thanks for being on the podcast, and and I miss you guys, and and keep doing really important work. I'm so glad that you are where you are at this time. This is a very um, stressful but interesting time in the world, and I'm very encouraged that that y'all are are leaders in it. Well, thanks, Travis, for having uh, for having me on the show. I greatly appreciate it. I, I love knowing you guys as well. So, um, and I'm thoroughly bummed that we won't be able to see each other in May, but. But I know there's a rainbow. There's a pot of gold at the end of that rainbow somewhere. So we will see each other soon. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thanks for hosting us. And to everyone, you know, uh, be well. Stay healthy. Okay. All right, guys. Till next time. Take care. All right. Take care, guys. Bye. Thanks again to my guests, Jamie Brewer and Pete Hyland. To hear all of the Crisis Podcast COVID-19 episodes, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen or become a fan of the Crisis Podcast on our Facebook page. 